It's been a little bit of a busy morning this morning. I still can't believe that we are here in January 15th, the halfway mark through the month of January, 2023. Guys, can you believe that? 2023. We're 24 years past when Prince wrote that song about 1999. (laughs) There are some of you in this room that weren't even born before 1999. Let me tell you something. No, I'm not going to say that because someone's going to write it down and send it back to me. So I'll just leave it at this. Time continues to move on, but God is constant in all things. The world changes. Technology looks different today. Have you thought about this? Maybe you have, but I think about this. I think about it often, and I don't know why. We live in a time of this world's existence that is unparalleled, nothing like what the generations before us have ever had to live in. And I'm not talking about if you're the oldest, like the builder generation versus the Zoomers this morning. I'm talking about the last hundred years of this world looks different than any other time in the world that's ever existed. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, literally, I mean, I thought about this. It, it, it takes hours. You know, this morning at our huddle, one of the people gave a testimony and said, you know, that they, they had to fly out to California this week and, and then they came back. They flew 3,000 miles in one direction and then came back the same week. You're saying, yeah, what's the point? That couldn't have happened over 100 years ago. Am I right? No way. In, the, in five hours or six hours, that never could have happened. The technology is amazing. The knowledge that we have is amazing. Encyclopedias are obsolete Right? Some of you still have those encyclopedias sitting in your shelves at home. Some of you go, what do I do with these things? I don't know what you do with the things. Some of the things that are older are still true. But information continues to change and is updated. And it's so much easier today to get things than we used to have before. I'm sharing all of that because... Um, though, you know, David was saying, we're not going to talk about, you know, the millennial return of Christ, you know, we're not digging into the, the book of revelation to talk about future things we are. And this is not a prophetic thing. This is common sense. According to scripture closer today to the return of Jesus than we've ever been in the history of this world. And scripture talks about some of this stuff, about some of the things that we're experiencing about the increase in knowledge that's going to happen. And there are different things that we look at. And Jesus talks about things that we should be mindful of. And he gives the, the illustration and the parallel of like birthing pains. How, you know, when you start birthing pains, women, I'm not talking to the men. Women, when you start birthing pains, they start and they're far apart. And as they continue to get closer to the actual birth, the pains become closer and closer and more violent until the time when the beautiful baby is born. And that's where we're going and that's what's happening in this world. And I'm saying that because there's an element in the, Old Te- in the New Testament that we need to be mindful of. And this has nothing to do with what we're talking about this morning. But I think it's important for us to talk about it just for a moment. Do we live imminent lives? Do we live an intimate lifestyle? And what I mean by that is there are less people that are planners in this world than people that fly by the seat of their pants. And I'm not talking about the daily things, the little things. I'm talking about the big picture things. I'm talking about people that save for their retirements, 
People that look ahead, they see two, three, four, five years down the road, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road. When I was a student in high school and college, I remember doing studies with the way the U.S. used to do business versus other countries, like in Japan especially, and their business plans would be 20, 30-year plans down the road, and the United States was looking at per quarter because we wanted to see what our returns would look like in the next quarter or the next year. And other companies were building five years, 10, 20 years in advance. Why would they do that? Because they want to look ahead and say, are we preparing for what would happen? Preparation is not a bad thing. But what if preparation was combined with imminence? And what I mean by that is the imminent return of Christ. If we believe that today was the very last day that we would be on this earth, And 11.59 p.m. would be the last day that all of us would breathe our final breath. How would the next number of hours of our life differ? Some of you would get up and leave right now because there's something that you need to do. There's a conversation you need to have. There's a phone call that needs to take place. Something would happen because you saw the imminence and it's necessary to walk in an imminence. I don't know why I was thinking about this today. Well, I do know why. Um, This past week, I've never followed her. I don't know anything about this, but I did read this past week that Lisa Marie Presley passed away. She was 54 years old. Two days before, she was sitting at the Golden Globes with her mother. Do you think for a moment she sat there and contemplated the fact that she probably wouldn't be alive in two days? No way. But what would her life have been like in that moment if she recognized she had 48 hours to live? What would our lives look like if we really thought if we really thought that Jesus was coming back this week, if we really thought Jesus would come back in this month, or 2023 was the very last year we would be on this earth the way we know it before the return of Christ, how would our lives look differently? How would it look differently? I'm not asking you to answer this morning. I'm asking you to contemplate it. Because in the New Testament, and this is a promise I could show you every single place, every single New Testament writer makes an illusion or makes an inference to the fact that they believe they were living in the last days. Every single writer. How did God take a handful of nobodies, empower them with the Holy Spirit, and transform the world? Because they all believed, one, they experienced the presence and the power of Christ, but two, they believed they were living in the last days, and that his return was imminent. 2,000 years later, there are people questioning that. You know, that's not much different when Paul wrote to Timothy. And he said, don't worry, These people, I'm sorry, when he wrote to the Thessalonians and he said, don't worry about the people that are criticizing. Where is this return of Christ that you said? It hasn't happened. And he's talking to people and we're talking decades from the time Jesus left. Now we're thousands of years away. And it's easy for us to get conditioned to just let our lives become vapors. To say, well, you know, we probably have 50, 60, 80 years, 90 years on this planet or more if God blesses us. But how many of us would change things if we thought this week was our last week? And he was returning. I'm sharing that with you, not because I know anything special. You know, he didn't text me a date or a deadline. I didn't get a tracking number from FedEx saying Jesus was coming back next Sunday. I don't know anything except to know that he said, no one knows the time, but when he comes, it will be like a thief in the night. You can plan, you can read, you can waste your money on all those books that all those people write about the reasons why Jesus is coming back this year. The only thing that you're padding in that situation and not as your confidence level, their bank accounts. They don't know. Nobody knows. But what is true is that he is coming back and he's coming back for a pure church. He's coming, excuse me, he's coming back for a holy church. Amen? A church that is focused on him. It doesn't mean our church is going to be without, without issues. 
because that's not possible on this side of eternity. But he is returning and he is coming back. And I'm excited to know that the world that I live in today isn't the world that I'm going to be in for all of eternity. There are cool things about this world that I really, really love. But then there are things that my heart aches to see changed. And the pains that we deal with and the struggles that we deal with. And to remember that Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble. Take heart. I will overcome the world. And when that day comes to an end, and we don't know exactly when that happens, but when he makes all the wrongs right and he recreates that was intentionally created to be perfect, there will be no tears, no crying, no hopelessness. There will simply be, for those who are in Christ, there will be an eternity of peace and confidence with the one who made them. Isn't that awesome? That's what we see in Scripture. No tears. No more tears. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to fi- try to imagine what that would look like. You know, Through my human eyes, I'd say, it's going to be the most beautiful place in the world. And when I was a kid, I thought that would be like an endless supply of soft-serve ice cream. You know, Wow, it never goes away. It never enters. I don't ever have to clean my room in heaven. Like, these are the things I'd think of when I was a kid. The coolest thing about all of this is you can figure out in your mind the most amazing day, scenario, circumstance you've ever experienced where your heart couldn't have been more full in this life. And it still doesn't scratch the surface on what it will look like when we are with him for eternity. That's why when John gets the image in Revelation and he says that there are jewels and there are streets that are paved with gold in heaven, we're not going to ride on streets of gold. Anyone that knows anything about metallurgy knows that gold is soft. And it would just create divots in your cars. You know, it's just silly. You're like, what are you talking about? It has nothing to do with literal Speaking of what's going to heaven's going to look like, it has everything to do with God trying to show a finite human mortal mind an infinite picture of an eternal picture of something we can't grasp. And what John is seeing in there is that the most valuable thing that earth has ever considered valuable from a materialistic perspective is dirt in heaven. How incredible could it possibly be? Isn't that exciting to even contemplate and think about? It's beautiful. It's beautiful to think about it. Good. I'm glad you're excited about it, Don. I'm glad. That's good. Amen. That's good. Can we just take a moment and just bow our heads in a word of prayer before we start? Jesus, thank you for loving us and knowing us. I just commit what we're going to talk about to you this morning. Thank you for your imminent return. Thank you for knowing us and always walking with us, for not being afraid or put off by our failures and our doubts, but for lovingly walking alongside us even when we're imperfect, even when we struggle. Lord, we just commit this time to you and I just pray that we really would make you the center of who we are. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, as promised last week, we are here in the Bible engagement and we are going to do a recap of our verses To date, at this point, we have three, excuse me, three verses that are our faith verses that began in October, November, and December. And we're going to go through each one of them this morning just to see how good we remember them. Okay, and I do have, as promised, I have a couple of little treats and prizes that people could pick from. Um, We're going to defer to some of our younger people. But if our younger people don't raise their hands, we're going to defer to some of our more seasoned people this morning. Okay? What I mean by that is not that you're better, you're just older. Okay? Uh, So we're going to go back to our first verse. I'm going to even give you the reference. I'm not going to show it to you, but it's Psalm 119.11. Does anybody have the... uh, the memory to be able to say, I know what Psalm 119.11 is, and you don't have to come up here. You can just, I'll pick you, and you just call it out as loud as you can. 
Don, what's it? What do you got? Yes, Psalm one nineteen eleven. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Awesome. Thank you, Don. Okay, how about the next one? Came out of First Thessalonians five twenty four. We have any First Thessalonians five twenty fours this week? Anyone that knows that verse? Anyone? Anyone? Look at all these shy people saying, "I'm going to let everyone else do this first before me." Anyone else know First Thessalonians five twenty four? Did I see your hand, Mercy? Go ahead, say it out loud. What do you have? Yes, God will make this happen for he who calls you is faithful. That's right. Thank you. That's second. Thank you. Third one, okay? This was from John 14, 6 in December. Okay, John 14, 6. Do we have anyone that remembers what Jesus told them in John 14, 6? Anyone, anyone, anyone? You can't do it twice, Don. Put your hand down. Can't do it twice. But I thank you for participating. Johnny. Yes, Jesus told them, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Awesome. Can you guys give them all a round of applause? So here's what what we're going to do, okay? Later, when the service is over, you guys can duke it out, okay? We have a chocolate bar, okay? We have a Mike and Ike. If you like Mike and Ike, you can have that, okay? We have some little mini York peppermint patties. Sorry for the product placement. There's nothing... uh, intentional about that. Uh, we have soft watermelon willy wallabies. Anyone know what these are? Anyone? Look, ooh, everyone knows what those are. Okay. And then we have whoppers. Okay. Not the Burger King kind, but these chocolate kind. Okay. So we have that as well. Okay. So you guys are welcome to come back and take some of those on your way back out today. I'm going to leave this right here on your way out today. And you're welcome to take that. Um, if we can just check this just to make sure I feel a little bit of a bouncing, just be mindful of that, please. Thank you so much. Um, Let's fast forward and talk about our verse today and where we are today. Our fourth face verse comes out of Isaiah chapter 41. And it says, do not be afraid for I am with you. Do not be discouraged for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you. I will hold you up. I'm sorry. With my victorious right hand. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel through Isaiah. And he's saying, don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you. This is a a verse that applied to the nation of Israel, but it's something that can apply to us as well. As we walk through our lives, we have to remember, if God is at the center of who we are and what we do in this life, if we truly do trust in him, he makes promises all through scripture that remind us that he is able, willing, and will continue to strengthen us even when we are unable to have the strength ourselves. Have you ever been in a place where you feel utterly, completely hopeless or weak? Maybe so. Yes, I have. Many times. In that time, I ask myself, if I don't have the strength to move on, many times those are the moments that God comes in and he does the thing that I am unable to do. And that's our faith verse for the month of January. Last week we looked at volume four, session three, and we talked about being set apart to hear God's voice. Today we're jumping backwards in Bible engagement to look at volume four, session one. We're doing session one today, and the title of today's message is being set apart to be used by God. Set apart to be used by God. That's today's message. Do you know what it means to be set apart? In the Old Testament, we hear the message being set apart. Can you get that title slide up for me if it's there? 
If it's not, I'm sorry. Okay, thank you. Being set apart to be used by God is holiness. God calls us in the Old Testament to be holy because he's holy. And holy sometimes can have the wrong connotation that we associate that with being perfect. And now God is perfect, but he's calling us to be different. He's calling us to be set apart, to be more and more like him. Last week, we looked about being set apart. He's called his people to be set apart so that he can hear, we can hear his voice and he can hear us. He always hears us, but he wants us to hear him. Today, he's calling us to be used by him. And when I use the term used, I want to be careful. I'm not referring to used in the sense of being abused or taken advantage of. You know, when people use people, it's not usually for a positive reason. So when I say to be used by God, it doesn't mean that God is waiting for us to be taken advantage of. And he wants us to be available, so he takes advantage of us. No, the sense I'm talking about is that he has a purpose that he wants to accomplish through us. He has a purpose that he wants to invite you to be a part of. That he sets us apart as people to be a part of his purpose something he invites us to be a part of. How many of us, again, not looking for a show of hands, would want to say in our hearts that we are available for God and God has in the past and will in the future use us to accomplish his will and his purposes. It's a pretty powerful thing, right? I mean, I'd say I want to be in that place. I don't want to be in any other place. I think it would be amazing to see if I knew that through my life, God was saying, you are in the place I have for you to be. Walk in it. That's a great place to be. To be used by God. So what does it look like to be used by God? Let me say it a different way. What does it require for us to be used by God? Maybe some of you think it requires skill. And training. Some of you may think it requires financial means or money in general to be used by God. In some cases, you maybe have to be the right nationality or the right culture to be used by God. People believe different things about God at different times in their life. Cultures associate value based on, you know, um, the culture they're from. Certain classes are of greater value than others. So these things are human thoughts that could be overlaid to say for us to be used by God, we have to have those things. But the truth of the matter is it really comes down to something very basic and something very simple. And it's this being used by God requires our faith to be anchored in God's strength. Being used by God requires our faith to be anchored in God's strength. Now I'm going to break that out a little bit later this morning But I want you just to remember this. It's not about skill. It's not about qualifications. It's not about education. It's about our faith. And our faith is anchored or rooted in God's strength. So remember that because we're going to come back to it. Today we are in Judges chapter 6. And if you have your Bible, you're welcome to go there or you can use one of the Bibles in front of you as we read. But we're in Judges chapter 6 and we are looking at a man named Gideon. Okay. Now some of you have heard of this story before. Maybe this is new for others. This is a really powerful story in the book of Judges. But before I read Judges 6, we have to know the context of what's happening. Because if I read this to you and you don't understand what's going on behind the scenes, it won't make a lot of sense to you. So I'm going to give you a really quick 
thumbnail summary of what's happening in the book of Judges. Okay, So if you know anything about the nation of Israel, you know that they were in captivity for over 400 years under the nation of Egypt. God raises Moses up, brings Moses into the land, Egypt, and Israel is brought out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. They wander in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years, right. Eventually they go back, they go into this land that God promised them to go into. It's called the promised land. It's called the land of Canaan, the land flowing from milk and honey. Some of you have heard that before. It was the land that God promised Israel would inhabit, and Israel would become a nation in this land. So they enter the land, but there are giants in the land, figuratively speaking. There are huge populations of people that are not godly. They spend their life worshiping false idols, doing different things. They go into this land, and there is a war that takes place over many, many years. The book of Joshua chronicles a lot of these wars. And one at a time, as they go from place to place, what you see through the book of Joshua is the nation of Israel beginning to occupy the land that God is giving them. You with me so far? Okay, this happens for a long time. Okay, a long time. But then you fast forward 200 years after they entered the land. We're now looking at Judges chapter 6. 200 years later. Okay, this is why this is important to know. 200 years after they entered the land, a couple things were happening and a few things didn't happen. Number one, the fighting was over. They weren't trying to inhabit land anymore. They occupied the land. In fact, Israel was broken out into 12 different tribes. Okay, the 12 tribes of Israel, maybe you've heard of, and they were in all these different places, occupying different places. The fighting had ceased. The generation, the larger group of people that were familiar with fighting and oppressing, I could say, or conquering the land, they're all gone. 200 years later, they took their weapons and they converted them into farming tools. So now you have people that were no longer soldiers, they were farmers. And they were living off the land. They weren't, they were, there wasn't, wasn't an army in the same sense that there was 200 years before. But there was a big problem that happened in Israel. And it was a cycle that happened over and over and over again. Here was their problem. The problem was a cycle that repeated at least 12 times that we see as recorded in Scripture. And it was this. The people of Israel that were supposed to worship God made a decision to worship false gods. As a result of their worship of false gods, they became oppressed by other nations. God allowed them to be oppressed by other nations. Why? Because they weren't worshiping him. They were worshiping false gods. As a result of that oppression, they cried out to God for help. It was like a cry of repentance to say, we know we shouldn't have done this. We repent. Please deliver us from the nations that are oppressing us. And then in response to that outcry, God would raise up a judge in Israel to deliver them through the oppression. Does that make sense? That happened at least 12 times. The people would serve God. Things were good. Then they decided to worship false idols and they began to create all type of idolatry and false worship in their midst. And as they did that, God would say, well, if you're going to worship them over me, then I have to take my hand of provision off of you and my blessing's not going to be there. They would be oppressed by foreign nations. They would deal with it for a while. They would cry out to God for help and assistance. God would raise up a judge. And then from that point, he would use the judge to deliver them from the hand of the oppressor. What we're going to read today is one of the times Israel worshipped false gods 
how they cried out to God and he chose someone to deliver the nation. He chose someone to be used by God. He chose someone to be the deliverer. So that's where we are in Judges 6. Israel had sinned against God and they were worshiping this God called Baal and they were making these Asherah poles which were part of pagan foreign worship. This is how bad it was, in case you wonder what the oppression looked like, in Judges 6, verse 2, about Israel's actions. This is what Midian did. Verse 2, the people of Midian, Midian said, And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. So I'm just painting this picture for you one more time. Not only were they living under oppression, but they lived in caves and they lived in mountains and they dug into holes because they were afraid of these people that would come in. And you know what they would do? They would come in and after the harvest was finished, the Midianites would come in and they'd take all of the harvest from the people of Israel and their cattle and their livestock that were there. They would destroy everything they possibly could. They would just annihilate everything that Israel had and they'd take it back for themselves. And they did this over and over and over again for seven years. That's the situation that Israel was dealing with. So that anything they needed to survive, they had to do in hiding. They had to do with great fear. That's why they lived in hills. That's why they dug holes out in caves. And then they cried out to God. And God answered them. Verse 7 It says, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. Okay, that's the exodus we talked about from Egypt. Verse 9, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell but you have not obeyed my voice. There are consequences in this world to living our way over God's way. That is not a popular thing for us to hear in this world because today we live in the world where everyone gets a medal. We live in a world where everyone gets a ribbon. Everyone comes in, you get a participation award in the world that you live in. In fact, your truth versus my truth doesn't really matter as long as we all get along. But God's word is very clear when he talks about these things. There is a truth that he has given his people to follow. And when we walk outside of that truth, there are consequences to those truths. Those behaviors result in things that we may not like. And he's saying that to Israel. And you might say this was thousands of years ago, but God is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that principle still applies. God speaks the truth about what's going to happen. And he speaks it through a prophet. And then he chooses to raise up a judge to deliver the people. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 11 about someone who's used by God. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abizirite where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Let's just stop there just for a second. See what's going on here? Remember, seven years of oppression. They steal everything that they get. The Midianites take everything Israel makes. Gideon, a son of, of a man named Joash 
is in a wine press threshing wheat. Now, I'm willing to bet most people here have probably never threshed wheat, okay? Unless you're secretly a wheat farmer and I've never heard of this before. But this area isn't really big on wheat farming, okay? But threshing wheat is something they had to do when they harvested the wheat to separate the pieces of the wheat so they could use it for food. And when they would do it traditionally, they would do it out in big spaces because there's a lot of wheat to harvest for a whole nation. So what Gideon was doing was taking remnants of what he could find after Midian stole all of the wheat from them and he was doing it in hiding because if he was found, he would get really hurt or oppressed or they would steal it from him. Make sense? So this guy is in a well, basically, a wine press that he can't see around, and he's threshing wheat to hide from what the Midianites could do. And when the angel of the Lord appears to him, he says to Gideon, the Lord is with you, what? Mighty warrior. Do you think in that moment Gideon felt like a mighty warrior? Why do you think he didn't feel like a mighty warrior? He was hiding. He was afraid. He was scared. Seven years of this stuff. Could you only imagine? I could only imagine what Gideon would have thought. Well, actually, I don't have to imagine. We just have to go to verse 13. Gideon's response. I love this. Uh, Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. This man of faith, this mighty warrior that the angel of the Lord is speaking to, what is he saying in response? Really? If I was going to paraphrase it, that's really what I think he probably would have said. Mighty warrior. And he went, really? Where are the signs? Where are the wonders? Where is the supernatural? Where is God's hand of provision? In fact, I'm going to go as far as saying God has abandoned his nation. And yet you're standing here calling me a mighty warrior? And yet he says it with respect because pardon me actually is is a a courteous way of saying, um, excuse me, Lord. But that's not true. Would you have considered him a man of faith based on the story? I wouldn't. And yet God calls him a mighty warrior. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Am I not sending you? I love the fact that in this situation, the angel of the Lord meets Gideon right where he is with all of his doubt, with all of his questions, and he reminds him of something, that he's the one that's choosing Gideon. He's the one that's sending him. He's the one that is choosing the path to deliver Israel, and he's using Gideon to do it. Even though Gideon is lacking in his faith, Verse 15, Gideon says, pardon me, Lord. Again, excuse me, Lord. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. One of the translations says in verse 16 that he'll strike down all the Midianites as if he were only fighting one man. Pretty powerful. 
So how confident do you think Gideon was in this call that God asked him to perform or to pursue? A mighty man of courage and valor. The Lord tells him, I'm sending you. The Lord tells him, you're a mighty warrior. Gideon's saying, I'm threshing wheat in a wine press. And there's been seven years of oppression. And not only that, my clan... My tribe, my people, we're the weakest in the entire tribe of Manasseh. We are the lowest of the lowest of the low. We're the weakest. We have the least amount of respect of anybody else. And me, I'm the lowest in my family. How in the world is that going to happen? Pretty amazing, isn't it? God didn't just choose someone. He chose someone who in their own eyes was weak. In their own eyes who was incapable, someone in their own eyes who was unable to do what was being asked of them in their own strength. Their personal view of themselves was not someone of strength and valor. It was someone of weakness and inability. And yet God chose Gideon and he said to him, I'm going to be with you. The key to this isn't about your heritage. The key isn't the family that you came from or how strong of a soldier you think you are. The key to this is that I will be with you. God will go and God will be the one who brings this to pass. Seven years of oppression, fear, discouragement, feeling abandoned. Gideon is visited while threshing wheat in a wine press. And he's fearful. He was fearful. But remember what I said about being chosen by God or being used by God? Being used by God requires two things. Remember I said being used by God requires our faith to be anchored in God's strength. Let's see it one more time. Being used by God requires our faith to be anchored in God's strength. So for Gideon to fulfill this, he needed to have a couple things in order. Number one, he needed to have some faith. And number two is faith needed to be properly anchored in the thing that would help him succeed. And what was that? God's strength. So what does that look like for our faith to be anchored in God's strength? Well, we see some faith examples here. And I want to briefly touch on this in verse 36. I'm going to fast forward to verse 36. Because what happens between what I just read in verse 16 to verse 36 is some testing that happens. And Gideon and God have this conversation and Gideon goes and gets an animal and he creates a sacrifice and he breaks down some, some uh, in the night, he takes 10 of his servants and he breaks down some false worship and he takes care of that stuff in night because he's afraid. But God says, do this. You need to get things right before this is going to happen. But I'm going to call you and equip you to do this. So his faith is what's required to be anchored in God's strength. What did his faith look like? Well, this is interesting. Verse 36. Gideon then says to God, this is before they actually go and they oppress and they fight the Midianites. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground around it, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So what is he giving here? A test. He's taking a test. He's taking a moment and he's saying, Lord, I'm hearing what you're asking me to do, but I'm scared. I'm hearing what you're asking me to do, but I'm afraid. I am going to put a test out, excuse me, a test and ask you that if it really is you, that you will confirm your word. 
you will confirm your will. So he takes a fleece. You know, a fleece, it'd be like a, um, maybe from like the skin of a, of, a, of a sheep or something like that that has, you know, some wool on it. And he lays it out on the, on the threshing floor. And he says, here's what I want you to do, Lord. If this really is you, I want in the morning to come and I want the fleece to be wet and I want all of the ground around it to be dry. Verse 38, and it was so. When he rose early the next morning and he squeezed the fleece, it wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Pretty cool test, right? Wet fleece, dry ground. But that's the easy test to have a wet fleece that sucks in water and dry ground around it. So Gideon then takes another step and he says, then Gideon says to God in verse 39, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only. And all the ground there around let be, I'm sorry, and, and all the ground let there be dew. So what was Gideon doing in this situation? He was saying, okay, maybe he was saying, okay, God confirmed it the first time, but he did ask God to do the easier of the two things. Because the ground's going to dry and absorb the water and the fleece is going to hold it. So he said, no, I'm going to have to change this this time. Why? Because he is what? Fearful. He's scared. He needs to know. So he asks God to perform another test to confirm his will. His faith was shaking. Please let it be this way, he says. Verse 40, and God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and all the ground there was dew. What does our faith need to look like? Here's what I want you to hear this morning, because you may have heard messages or you know people that their faith is so unshakable Excuse me, their faith is so unshakable that anything God speaks to them about, they just do it. And they run full tilt, and the Lord speaks to them about everything. I mean, God even tells them which shoe to put on in the morning. And they're going, and they're moving, and they're doing everything, and you're saying, I could never be like that person. I have too many questions. I don't know if, how do I even know this is the voice of God I'm hearing? How do I know I'm listening to God versus listening to a thought in my head? Or maybe someone else's story. This is why I think this story is so great. Being used by God doesn't mean that our faith is without fail. Being used by God doesn't mean that our faith is perfect. Being used by God doesn't mean that we are not allowed to ask God for a test. Now, I'll be real clear. Gideon wasn't asking this, and this isn't a formula for us to follow, to say, well, when God asks, I'm going to say, I'm afraid I don't believe you, so I'm going to make you do tests. God's compassion and in his grace he responded to Gideon's doubt. Ultimately, we don't need to be or we don't want to be in a place where we have to do that. But the beautiful part of this word, and you see in the story, is that God is not intimidated by our doubt. God doesn't disqualify us simply for our doubt. You know who else he was not disqualifying because of his doubt? Moses. Remember when Moses stood between, uh, before the burning bush and God said, Moses, you are going to be the one who delivers Uh, Israel from Egypt. Moses didn't stand up and go, awesome. What did he say? I I stutter. I can't even speak well. Okay, well, um, this is what's going to happen. I'll go with you. Um, 
No, Lord, like you don't. Under-. And he gave him excuse after excuse so far where the anger of the Lord burned against him. And he said, take your brother, he'll go. And from now on, when Pharaoh speaks, he won't speak to you, he'll speak to Aaron, but you're going to speak to Aaron. But to, to Pharaoh, he will see you as a God. God's not intimidated by our doubt, church. He's not intimidated by our questioning. In fact, the relationship is so important to him that when he wants to use us and he calls us, he already knows some of the things that you may struggle with. You know where I've seen this evident? I've seen this across the the years that I've been here. I've seen it in a lot of different places. But in some places I've seen it when people are called to step into areas of leadership or to serve in some capacity, that people are afraid People are concerned. I'm not really sure if God wants me to do that. I'm not sure if I have the qualifications to do that. Let me tell you something. If God's putting something on your heart, the best thing that you can do is to navigate that by taking some steps. Part of what it means to walk out and be used by God is to get into the pool. If you want to get wet, you have to walk into the pool. If you want to go somewhere, you have to put the car in drive, right? I tell people, God doesn't steer a parked car. When I was a kid, I used to sit in the driveway with my parents' car and just drive the wheel and pretend I was going places. Well, guess what? I didn't go anywhere. One, I couldn't see over the steering wheel, but the car wasn't running and it was in park. If you want to go somewhere, it's got to be running and it's got to be in drive for it to move somewhere. And that's important for us to know. If we want to be used by God, our faith is where it starts. And God is not afraid and not intimidated by those of us who question or have to seek discernment. In fact, I really believe, based on what we see in Scripture, God welcomes the question. God welcomes the interaction. God welcomes the discernment. Not because you're saying, and this is clear, I want to be clear about this, if the Lord's speaking to you to say, go do this thing that you don't want to do, and you're saying, unless you do this, I'm not doing that. That's a different posture of our heart. Gideon's posture was not this with his arms closed. Gideon's posture was, pardon me, Lord. Gideon's posture, as you heard earlier, when he said in verse 39, he said, don't let your anger burn against me respectfully. But he was saying, if this really is you speaking, would you please hear me again and please respond with this? God sees the posture of our heart, church. And if the posture of our heart is, I'm willing, but I'm fearful, I'm willing, but I'm not sure, he will respond to you. He will open doors. He will show you circumstances on how those things will work and how things will happen. I've seen this so many times over the years where my own life and people around me and people that I've known here at the church over the years, God speaks something to us. And the process of getting the answer is not sitting idly by and just waiting for God to give you the confirmation. It's for you to begin walking that journey and see if he's in the journey If he's in the journey, he will confirm himself in the journey. I was just telling someone this past week, and we were laughing about it. When I left uh, pharmaceuticals in 2007, after being there for almost 15 years, and was doing the math in my head about what I was doing, because we were a single-income family. My wife was home with our children. They were young. And I was leaving the golden handcuffs, they used to call it. Some of you work in pharmaceuticals, you know what I'm talking about. The golden handcuffs. They pay you really well. No one ever wants to leave. Why would you walk away from that? And that was a conversation I had with many people that I worked with during that transition time. But I remember the day I walked in there and I was going in with my memo to say, hey, I want to go part-time. I'm going to leave. I want to go to seminary, blah, blah, blah. And um, driving in there, having anxiety through through the roof, through the roof. 
And I'll just be honest with you, like not everyone that I knew that I was close to thought this was a great idea. You know, sometimes the people around you are going to support you. And sometimes the people around you go, I don't know about this. And that's okay. But I remember having my anxiety for 22 minutes as I drove into work. And I remember yelling at the top of my lungs in that car with my fist and my finger pointed to the roof of the car like God was in the roof. And I said, you better take care of us. And I yelled it multiple times. You better take care of us. And it absolutely scared me crazy. This was even going to happen. And what happened from that blew my mind because in the course of 30 days, they created a part-time position for me. I helped backfill my boss. And for three years, they gave me a half salary with full-time benefits so that I could take care of my family while I went to seminary. And they approved it within 30 days. And I look back at that and I go, and I remember one of my friends telling me there in, in HR, they said, in the history of our company that I've been here, I've never heard of anybody do this before. They've done job shares, but they give you a part-time position with full-time benefits for three years. I've never heard that happen before. I thought that was really cool. Isn't that pretty cool? God would not have looked at me in that season as a person of great faith. He would not have said to me in that moment, you, well, maybe he would have, but I wouldn't have believed it you mighty person of faith, I would have said, I was shaken in my boots. I'm the only solution to helping my family right now. What are you doing? Let me ask you this morning, where is your faith? What does your faith look like? Do you know it's okay for you to question God? Back up. I always say this wrong. Do you know it's okay to ask God questions in the midst of the things you don't understand? Asking God questions is different than questioning God. It's okay to ask God questions about things you don't understand. It's okay to ask God to help you confirm things as you're walking through because you just don't know. Those are all okay things to do in the midst of what you're walking through. Why? Because there's relationship in the journey. And if your hands and your heart are not crossed and they're open to say, whatever you have, I will do, but I need to know this is you doing it. God welcomes those conversations, church. Don't be afraid of that. We need to be used by God. It requires our faith. The second part of it that we need to have is God's strength. God's strength. And I want to fast forward just to Judges 7, verse 2, and read this for you briefly. The Lord said to Gideon, I love this. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Let me explain what's happening here. After Gideon gets the confirmation of what's happening, after Gideon knows God's calling him to do it, they send out a message to the tribes and the people around them. 32,000 people gather from Israel to fight a Midianite army of over 120,000 people. 32,000 men come to fight for what God has called them to do. And God's response to the 32,000, 32,000 versus 120, is there are too many people here. The people with you are too many for me to give to the Midianites to your hand, lest Israel boast, saying, my own hand has saved me. What is he saying? You have too many people here, because if you do win the battle, you could be in danger of taking the credit. I want you to see that your faith only works when it's coupled with my strength, not yours. So God tells Gideon, go tell everyone who's afraid that they can go home. Everyone who's afraid, go home. You know how many leave of the 32,000? 
22,000 go home. Now the 32,000 is down to 10,000 versus 120,000. Still a lot of numbers, but if I were Gideon, I'd say, okay, I'm good with that. Of the remaining 10,000, God still says in Judges 7, still too many. Take them to the watering hole and watch how they drink. And the ones that cup the water up to their, to their mouths, put them to one side. And the ones that drink the water by lapping it up like a dog, put them to the other side. I only want the ones that cup the water up to their hand. Of the 10,000, the ones that cup the water to their hand numbered 300. God then says, now we're ready to do something awesome. And he takes 300, 300 Israelites and uses them to defeat an entire army of 120,000. Now, that is not man's strength, correct? That's the strength of God doing something significant. And I'm sharing that with you because it requires for us to be used by God. Our faith in whose strength? God's strength. God's strength. And God wants to know in the midst of it that we're willing to trust him through the journey. Because if we trust him through the journey, we know that the impossible things become possible. Not because we organize it properly. And I think this is a danger, whether we're walking individually as Christians, we're leading in churches, we're leading our homes. It doesn't matter. When all we do is try to see things through our faith in God and our strength, we leave no room for God to work. But God is a master multiplier. He takes things that make no sense to us and he multiplies them times 10, 1,000, 10,000, a million. And he changes circumstances around to say, even though you think the situation is hopeless, watch what I'm going to do. Because when your faith is anchored in my strength, then you can see how it will use you and how I will be glorified and not man. Does that make sense? Here's the beauty of this whole story. As we're going to get ready to close, the worship team is going to come. The beauty of the story is that, yes, you can apply this in your daily walk and you can look at this. If you're a follower of Christ and you're walking in relationship with God, you can look at individual situations that you're in today and you can say, what kind of faith do I demonstrate today with God? Lord, I doubt in this area or in that area. I struggle with some of these things and maybe you do and that's okay. Do you know that he's not overwhelmed by your struggle? Do you know that he's not surprised by your struggles? We can apply that to our life and say, I can keep pursuing God in the midst of my doubt and he will meet me right where I am. It's a great application. And then when he gives me strength to move forward, be mindful of this, church. It's not your strength that you, that you use to move forward through it. It's his strength. He does things that we could never do in our own strength. But this story is not just about Gideon or us fighting our battles in this world. Because if you fast forward all the way to the Gospels and you look at the work of Jesus and you look at the truth of the Gospel message of salvation through Christ alone, here's what we see. Our faith is what saves us. Not our work, not our effort, not our ability. Paul said in Ephesians 2 that it is by the grace of God we are saved through faith. And whose faith is that in? Jesus Christ and him alone. In fact, our understanding of things don't make sense or doesn't make sense to the world's understanding. To the church in Corinthians, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He said, for the message of the cross, look at this with me. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Our faith, our faith may be questionable. We may doubt. But ultimately, the message of the church and the message of Christianity is about our faith in Christ means that we trust in one who is greater than ourselves to solve an impossible problem. And that's the message of salvation. Do you trust in him to be set apart, to be used by him for his purpose? Because the greatest purpose you and I could ever have in this world isn't about what we can accomplish for God. It's about the invitation to be in relationship with God. So with open hearts and with open hands this morning, I ask if you would take a moment, if you would stand with us and you would bow your heads and you would ask that question to yourself. Are you in a place where you're being used by God? Are you in a place where you're being available for God? Or are you stuck? Are you stuck on qualifications or abilities or lack of abilities? just remind you this morning he doesn't use us based on our skills he uses us based on our availability God is able we are available and there is victory in that combination Jesus I just pray this morning I pray this morning as we continue to walk this journey out together that you will have your way in what we do God that our hands and our heart will be open to you if you would all take just a few moments. We're not going to stay during the service and sing this song together. The team will sing this as we are waiting on God. But I just want to pray a prayer. It's a prayer not of dismissal. It's a prayer of openness to just say, where are you this morning in being used by God? Is your heart connected to him? Are you looking for some answers? And then you choose in your timing to leave as you need to leave and the team will play but there's not going to be any closing prayer after that I just want to open the doors and say if you're here this morning and you're saying I just need I need to spend some time with God my faith is being my faith is being challenged this morning and I'm okay to not believe sometimes I'm okay to doubt but Lord give me some clarity on where I need to go with this if that's where you are and for whatever reason spend some time with the Lord and as the team sings and plays You're welcome to stay. You're welcome to let us pray with you. And then you can leave as you need to leave. Jesus, may our hearts be open towards your will. Have your way in all that we do. May we be able to say with open hearts and open hands that we want to be used by you for your purpose. Teach us how to understand how our faith needs to be anchored in your strength so that we can accomplish those purposes. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're welcome to come or stay as you need to.